All right, well, as I just prayed, we are considering membership in the EFCA. Hopefully anyone who's part of our church knows that this is an ongoing discussion for us. And as part of that, we've encouraged everybody in our church to read the EFCA Statement of Faith on their website. And in this class, I am going to teach through that statement. Now, unfortunately, we won't get all the way through the statement before we hit the date of when we plan to vote on it, but um, we'll get close. We might even get done in time, but just with the way my teaching pattern goes, I always end up adding lessons, which is not good. I hope not to do that, but even still, I think we'll, we'll not get to the final article. So I encourage you to continue to read that online, and if you have questions about things at the end of the Statement of Faith, feel free to reach out and ask about them. But as we think about Statements of Faith, we just recognize that for centuries, Christians have used Statements of Faith to articulate what they believe in a condensed and a concise way. We try to articulate our core beliefs in these Statements of Faith. Most Evangelical churches have a statement of faith that they use, either one that they've adopted from a denomination that they're part of, or some churches even write their own statement of faith. I, I had thought about writing one for our church and just realized that's a massive undertaking, and most of the time that people do that, they're just looking at a bunch of other statements of faith that people have written, and then they just kind of piece them together, and eventually they end up with the same thing with just some slight differences. So I'm happy that as we look at our church's life and joining a denomination, we can tie into a statement that's been carefully vetted and worked over for many years. In this first lesson, I just want to give a little bit of a history of the statement of faith of the free church, the EFCA, and then provide clarity on what it takes to revise that statement of faith and then its impact on the denomination and on our life as a church. So let's start by think, looking at the history of the statement of faith of the Evangelical Free Church of America. The Evangelical Free Church of America, the denomination, is also referred to as just the Free Church or the EFCA. So if I use those terms, I'm referring to the exact same thing. Um, but the EFCA has had a statement of faith since its inception in 1950. Now, the history of the EFCA goes earlier than 1950, but that's when these different church streams merged into one denomination, and from the start, they believed they needed a statement of faith to unify around. Now, that's different than other denominations or church cooperations. So, for example, we've talked about the Southern Baptist Convention quite a bit here. They didn't start with a statement of faith. They joined together to cooperate for missions, and the thing that drew them together was just this historical circumstance where slave-owning missionaries were not being sent out by their denomination because they owned slaves. So in the South, they said, we want to protect the right of slave owners who also want to be missionaries, so we will support them. So some denominations or conventions started with shared purpose, but less than honorable, even as they intended to do honorable things. Well, I, I appreciate that the EFCA from the start united around shared theological commitments. That solves a lot of problems, and it prevents a lot of problems from popping up along the way. Now, the free church isn't free of problems. Having a statement of faith doesn't solve everything, but it is really helpful. 
So from the start, the, the EFCA began as an association of autonomous churches united around the convictions expressed in the statement of faith. Now, even though they've united around the statement of faith, the EFCA in the statement of faith affirms that the Bible is the highest authority. And I think we would want to say the exact same thing. The Bible's the highest authority, but the statement of faith is derived from the Bible, and then in turn it helps us interpret the scriptures rightly. So in the EFCA, if you interact with people who have been like cradle EFCAers, like they grew up in the EFCA, there's a phrase that they'll use all the time when there's a matter for debate. The phrase is, where stands it written? And, and what the EFCA is doing with that phrase is saying, okay, where in the Bible are we finding the support for our conviction? And I think that's a really good impulse. Now, in our biblical interpretation class, I also argued that that impulse goes wrong sometimes when we interpret the Bible on our own in isolation without recognizing that the whole church has been reading the Bible and we need to read it with the church. But um, I appreciate that the EFCA appeals to the Bible as the ultimate authority. From the start, though, with this statement of faith, the founders of the EFCA left open the possibility of making revisions to the statement of faith. I think we'd all say that's a really good thing. You don't want to write a statement of faith and say nothing about this can ever change. Because as soon as you do that, you're giving it a kind of authority that it probably shouldn't have. At the same time, you don't want your statement of faith to be able to be changed willy-nilly. Otherwise, it really has no authority. So the EFCA has tried to balance the possibility of change with a commitment to doctrinal constancy or consistency, and that, that's a hard balance to strike. I don't know if there's a better way to do it than they have. They have a process in place that involves leadership at the top, the board of directors, the spiritual heritage committee, but then ultimately it's the churches of the EFCA that have to vote to affirm any changes. And typically, those changes um, come from the top. You know, the board of directors maybe makes a recommendation, and then the convention or conference votes on it. But it takes like two years for it to actually change anything. So the point is that the statement can be changed, but it can't be changed quickly. The most significant change in recent years was in 2019, when Article 9, this article discussing the end times, was changed. So historically, the EFCA had been premillennial. So that's an end times view that emphasizes the return of Christ prior to a 1,000-year kingdom that's prior than the new creation. So for some of you, you won't care about this at all. I'm just giving this as an illustration that change does happen, but it takes time. So the though the EFCA had been premillennial historically, they realized through a doctrinal survey that they were giving out that many of their churches and pastors really struggled with that belief. And as they were sending people to the seminary and the college of the EFCA, those students were leaving not premillennialists. And so as they heard from the churches, the board of directors and the Spiritual Heritage Committee proposed changing one word in the statement from premillennial return to glorious return to accommodate a broader range of perspective. Well, this discussion was started in 2008, and then it was proposed in 
2017 and then finally voted on in 2019. So you can see how even something as small as that takes quite a while. Now, on some level, that can be frustrating when you really want something changed in the statement of faith. But on the other hand, again, I think it brings a kind of conservation of theology, a, pro a protection of belief that recognizes statements may need to change, but those changes should happen slowly and thoughtfully. So there's a statement of faith. It has binding authority, as we'll talk about in a moment, but it can be changed, all right? Any, any questions or things you want to chase on that? Okay, I, I'll talk about this a little bit more. I think one benefit of joining a denomination is that a church on its own doesn't have the authority to change the statement of faith without leaving the denomination. So sometimes churches run into things where they want to change their statement of faith so that they can accommodate something in a particular moment of time. And sometimes that change needs to happen but it would have been better for it to happen in a different way. So to use example, one of the churches that some of you used to be a member at um, raised up a lay elder. And in Eden's statement of faith, they were premillennial. But that elder that they wanted to affirm was not premillennial. So as a church, they decided, we're going to affirm this guy as an elder anyway, and then retroactively change our statement of faith to permit it. So sometimes changes need to happen, and you run into complications of how to do it. Well, that, that's an example of them trying to navigate that situation. At other times, churches try to change their statement of faith for, I think, bad reasons. So we know of many churches that used to hold to, you know, the Bible's authority or something like that, but then under cultural pressure want to escape biblical authority, so they change their statement of faith with no one to regulate that or call them to accountability because they're just individual isolated churches. Well, by being part of a denomination that has a statement of faith, churches are held to a level of accountability where they can't just change their statement of faith on their own without there being repercussions for their relationship with the denomination. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to the way it relates to local churches. But to join the denomination, you have to adopt their statement of faith. Now, you can say more than what they say. So you can have more particular beliefs in certain areas than what are articulated in the statement of faith, but you just can't contradict the statement of faith. Does that make sense? So right now, we don't have our own statement of faith. We've been utilizing the Southern Baptist Convention statement of faith called the Baptist Faith and Message. Um, so it would be adopting the EFCA statement of faith instead of continuing to use the Baptist Faith and Message. 2000, that edition of it. Does that answer the question? Okay. Um, so let's talk about the role of the statement of faith in the denomination. As I mentioned, the statement of faith plays an important role in the denomination because it's the unifying point for all the churches in the denomination. Churches must agree to the statement of faith or affirm the statement of faith to be able to partner in missions and relationships to be part of the denomination. For that reason, the statement of faith is somewhat broad. It needs to accommodate all of the churches that are part of the denomination, while at the same time drawing boundaries of belief so that only like-minded churches can be part of that denomination, or at least like-minded to a certain extent. 
So in that way, the statement of faith functions as a promise from denominational leaders. Any leader in the denomination must affirm that statement of faith. But it also represents a theological commitment of all of the churches that they will affirm and abide by that statement of faith so that they can remain in healthy participation in the denomination. So this is the paragraph that describes the role of the statement of faith in the denomination. This statement of faith forms the basis for unity at the national and district levels. It serves as a doctrinal standard for all those who will be credentialed in the EFCA. That's, you know, credentialing to you um, affirm that you've gotten a certain level of training in, all the way up to ordination, or serving with our international mission Reach Global, and it is required for all new churches. It is also used both as a theological norm for professors at our university and seminary, and as a basis for instruction in new member classes in local churches. So basically, to be part of the denomination, you have to affirm this statement of faith. Again, you can believe more, or you can even wish that they had worded something different, but you can't deny what's in the statement of faith. So what's the role of the statement of faith for local churches and local church members? Well, local churches and pastors have to affirm the statement of faith to be part of the denomination. Otherwise, you, you can't be part of the denomination. But what about, like, average church members? Do average church members have to affirm it in the same way that the church as a whole and that pastors have to affirm it? The short answer is no. But the question is difficult when the lived realities of church life are considered. So, for example, some new Christians and even longtime Christians may lack the necessary theological education to even have an opinion on certain matters in the statement of faith, or to have the equipment to understand why something is worded the way that it's worded. Um, and then, in addition, some articles in the statement of faith are more central to the gospel than other articles in the statement of faith. So while our church as a whole would have to affirm the statement of faith, not every member needs to agree with every line of the statement of faith. And that's true of our current practice as a church. So there are members of our church now who don't agree with every line in the Baptist faith and message, and that's okay, depending on what lines they disagree with. So there, there's not a yes or no answer to every objection someone might have to our statement of faith. It has to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. The other complication is that in a statement of faith, there are lines that are left up for interpretation. Someone could read the line and interpret it one way, while someone else could affirm it, but they interpret it in a different way. So statements of faith don't solve every disagreement or problem. Now, our current practice is to permit individuals to join our church despite either disagreement with certain aspects of our statement of faith or a simple lack of awareness or conviction on a particular matter. And then the reality is that we have beliefs at a church that aren't expressed in our statement of faith, and some people might disagree with those commitments that we have, but they want to join our church anyway. And on the whole, we're okay with that. There's flexibility when it comes to disagreement, as long as that person is willing to be charitable and respectful and know that we're not going to change our commitment just because they're joining our church. So when it comes to the lived reality of congregational life, not everybody is going to agree with everything, and that's okay. So I, I want to give you a couple of case studies. So case study number one, 
here. Imagine a non-Christian who comes to faith and this person wants to be baptized and join Resurrection Church. But as this Christian is reading our statement of faith, so if we adopt this EFCA statement of faith, they're, they're reading it and they disagree with Article 7. Article 7 states that the membership of local churches should be composed only of believers. But this person thinks Resurrection Church would be way better at outreach if they let non-Christians become members of the church and get involved and serve. And, and if they can really belong, then they'll come to belief. You know, so this new Christian thinks that would be the best way for Resurrection Church to operate. But I understand that you're not going to do it that way. Should we allow that person to join our church, even though they disagree with that line of the statement of faith? If you would agree, raise your hand. Yeah, if you disagree, raise your hand. I think we'd all probably say, yeah, you know what, they're, we, we think they're misguided on that, but well-intentioned. And they, that person needs to be baptized and join a church, and probably in five years they aren't going to hold that same disagreement. But we really appreciate their evangelistic fervor. So you see how someone can disagree with the line, but it's not detrimental to the life of our church. And in fact, that person could probably persist in disagreeing with that for the rest of their life, and that might be someone that benefits this church in a way that someone who's maybe overly committed to, you must like be so Christianized that you've gotten a seminary degree to join our church. You, you know, kind of counterbalances that other kind of weird person. Um, but consider this other case study on Article 1. Imagine that a couple has been visiting Resurrection Church for several weeks. They've expressed a desire to join. And in that conversation, they tell the pastors that they grew up as oneness Pentecostals and that they strongly disagree with Article 1 of the Statement of Faith, which describes God as three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Instead, they believe that there's only one God who manifests himself in three different modes or roles, as the Father in creation, as the Son, Jesus Christ in redemption, and as the Holy Spirit in regeneration. They believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not distinct persons in the Godhead, but rather different manifestations or aspects of the one God. Should this couple be welcomed into the membership of Resurrection Church? Well, they're affirming a heresy. They wouldn't be able to recite the Apostles' Creed with us. They wouldn't be able to worship, they wouldn't be worshiping the same God that we worship. So in that case, I think we would want to tell this couple, look, we would love to help you understand why what you believe is a heresy, but you cannot join our church and affirm a heretical view. Same thing for, I would say, a Jehovah's Witness who just happens to like our church better, or a Mormon who thinks Mormon doctrine is right, but Resurrection Church is a nice, friendly place, and I want to be part of it. Well, we, we would tell those people that kind of disagreement touches on essentials of the gospel, and we, we can't permit you into the membership. So do you see the difference in the kinds of disagreements that are possible and that aren't? Any questions or things you want to chase or other examples that you're curious about? Okay. Um, as, as these reveal, each disagreement with the statement of faith has to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis. But just because someone disagrees with an aspect of the statement of faith doesn't mean that we'll automatically deny them membership. At the same time, our church as a whole has to affirm the statement of faith 
to join the denomination. The reality is that regardless of which statement of faith we would adopt, there will be people who are part of our church who will disagree with certain lines of it. That's just the nature of statements of faith. The other reality of a statement of faith is that there are always wordings that some of us might want to be different, you know, and the only way to get that is if we all wrote our own statements of faith, but that's kind of counterintuitive to having a statement of faith that unites people with a mutual faith and declaration or profession of faith. Um, so the role of the statement of faith is it brings unity to the denomination. Churches have to affirm it. It's a promise that denominational leaders make to retain theological fidelity. But individual church members, while they probably need to agree with it on the main or generally speaking, there is room for disagreement in some of the particulars. But this statement of faith, then, is an evangelical statement of faith. Um, now, there's confusion across the planet about what an evangelical is, so we have to think about that a little bit. We need to think about what the evangel is, and then we need to think about what it means for a statement of faith to be evangelical. Terms like evangelical and evangel evangelism, sorry, evangelism, I think, I don't think anyone pronounces it that way. It's like ecology or, or ecology, you know. I like that evangelical because it sounds more refined and less political. Um, the term evangelical is drawn from this Greek word euangelion, um, the word that's usually translated gospel or good news. So when people identify as evangelicals or when we talk about evangelizing, we're just connecting ourselves to the evangel, the gospel. Um, but what is the evangel, the euangelion, that provides the central reference point for evangelicals or that should provide the central reference point for evangelicals? Um, in, I'd argue that the Gospels are the best place to start looking for a definition of the Gospel. Makes sense, right? Um, and in fact, I'd say that you need the whole of the Gospels to get the full picture of the Gospel, but we can still try to condense it into one statement. But arguably, when you read the Gospels, the Gospel is all about the announcements of God's kingdom in close association with Jesus as God's anointed king. So when Jesus begins to preach the gospel, there's often this phrase attached to the gospel. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And I think it's tragic that in much of American evangelicalism, the gospel has been disconnected from the kingdom of God, and it's become an individual reality only. But I feel like I talk about this all the time, so probably I don't need to say more. The point is that the gospel is a message that God has a kingdom and we can become citizens of that kingdom all because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Or put another way, the gospel is the royal announcement that the resurrected Jesus is God's messianic king. While I harp on this probably too much, it is also true that there's no one way to phrase this. And the fact that we have four gospel accounts should indicate to us that we need multiple descriptions and declarations of the gospel to encapsulate the full picture. I appreciate this guy, Michael Bird, who kind of looks at the gospels and outlines several features of the gospel that ought to be included. I'll just read them briefly. The gospels proclaimed by the apostles is intimated in the Old Testament. So when we construct our definition and articulation of the gospel, we ought to have reference to the Old Testament. When we don't hold to a gospel that appeared in Jesus' birth, but that was declared prior to Jesus' birth, 
all the way back in, some would say, Genesis 3.15, where, where there's the promise that the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. So I think a good challenge for Christians in our church is to, over lunch, ask each other, how would you share the gospel just from the Old Testament? That's how the apostles did it. That's how Jesus did it. I think we ought to be able to do that. And don't try to be, like, unique. It's fine to say, I can't think of anything outside of Isaiah 53 or Genesis 3.15 or Psalm 2. You know, that, that's fine, but I think all of us need to have a gospel that has roots in the Old Testament. Otherwise, I don't think we actually have the gospel. Um, the gospel is the message of the kingdom of God. That's where Jesus started. That's, I think, where we ought to start. Um, the gospel includes the story of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. And all of those movements are necessary. Apart, of, apart from the resurrection, you don't have the gospel. And apart from the exaltation of Christ, his ascension in current session, you don't have the gospel. Um, the gospel announces the status of Jesus as the Son of David, Son of God, and Lord. We need to know who Jesus is. You know, we've read the book of Mark in this Bible reading plan we're doing. We've done Christianity Explored, which goes through the book of Mark. And the central driving question is, who is Jesus? And what's the answer to that in Mark? Well, there are two answers, right? Um, Peter's answer in the middle of Mark, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And then the centurion's answer when he looks up at Jesus on the cross and he says, truly, this is the Son of God. Mark cues us up to ask, who is Jesus? And those are the two answers. And if we miss that, if we preach a gospel that declares Jesus apart from the Messiah and the Son of God, we're missing at least Mark's focus on the gospel. Um, the response that the gospel calls for is faith and repentance. So while the gospel strictly is a royal announcement, royal announcements require responses from people. And we need to respond with faith and repentance, and that needs to be included in our explanation of the gospel. And then finally, salvation is the chief benefit of the gospel. Now there, you know, we could take a lot of time. How would you define salvation? I think if you each wrote out a definition of salvation, you'd have a, di a different answer for every person. We need a broad, all-encompassing definition of salvation. I think in American evangelicalism, the standard answer is salvation from hell. An improvement on that is salvation from sin, but salvation throughout the Bible includes a broad array of things that I think fundamentally begins with reconciliation with God and renewal of life, these sorts of things, um, but that certainly include rescue from judgment and eternal life. So we need a full-orbed definition of salvation. And this, I think, also is important as you're sharing the gospel with other people. Um, do you ever notice how Jesus tailors his declaration of the kingdom to the person that he's talking to? And he announces the salvation benefit that that person needs or senses their need of most, even though that person needs to grow in their conception of the gospel later on. So I think it's, there are certain people who you share the gospel with who are terrified of what's going to happen to them when they die. And, and offering them the promise of eternal life is the thing that will help them appreciate Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice and draw them to faith and repentance in a way that no other aspect of salvation can. There are other people who have a deep longing in their heart for a loving family. 
And the thing that's going to draw them to the glory of the gospel isn't going to be an emphasis on salvation from hell, but salvation into the family of God, where they will have spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters that they have never had. So what I'm trying to encourage you to do is to have a big gospel so that when you encounter individual people, you can put them on the gospel map where they need to be so that they can find the God who's finding them. Does that make sense? Okay, so sometimes when I've talked about this, I've heard people critique me for not emphasizing hell enough. But what I'm trying to say is I'm not diminishing that. I'm just trying to say there's far more than that, and we need more than that. And if you don't have more than that, you're going to have a really stunted gospel. So I like the way that Bird brings these together. He says, the gospel is the announcement that God's kingdom has come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord and Messiah in fulfillment of Israel's scripture. The gospel evokes faith, repentance, and discipleship. Its accompanying effects include salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, so that's what we mean when we talk about the evangel, the gospel. That's what brings us together more than anything else, and that should be at the heart of what unites us together. Uh, one, because I won't get through all the notes, I'm quickly realizing. One, one thing that people might critique about the statement of faith that we're going to look at is that it doesn't include more. You know, some, some people might look at this and say, why aren't there more statements about this aspect of what we believe? And the answer is that the statement of faith is trying to just work out the gospel in different areas of theology without saying everything that the gospel would say about everything, and without saying everything that the Bible has to say about everything, because eventually you no longer have a statement of faith, you have a systematic theology. And we need systematic theologies, but we need concise summaries. In addition, I'd say that the denomination has other position papers that address issues that we really do believe. They just aren't the gospel. So, for example, in the appendix to the statement of faith, there's a statement on gender and sexuality that affirms a traditional perspective on sexuality. But that's not the gospel, so it's not included in the statement of faith, even though we believe things like marriage is or ought to be between one man and one woman. We believe all sorts of things that don't make it into the statement of faith. The statement of faith is just not intended to do that job. Does that make sense? Okay, so we... we just talked about what the gospel or the evangel is. So then who are evangelicals? Well, this is debated and complicated. There's a guy named Con Campbell who just wrote a book called Jesus versus Evangelicals, um, a, re- a biblical critique of a wayward movement. I, it's a really thin book. I thought it was really helpful. In this book, he identifies three kinds of people who identify as evangelicals or evangelicals. There are those who are theological evangelicals, those who are affirming the gospel that we just talked about. And then there are cultural evangelicals. Those are like, think of the person who grew up in the South who says, I'm a Christian, but has never gone to church a day in their life. Um, But they have some Christian values, but they've conflated Christian values with American values. And then there are political evangelicals. And those are people who get surveyed and they tend to vote Republican. But when you look deeper in the survey, they also don't attend church. So they're not theological evangelicals. That's why I tried to distinguish evangelicals from evangelicals. It's a battle that will never be won. Um, But when we talk about being evangelical, we're not talking about being political evangelicals or cultural evangelicals. We're talking about being theologically committed to the gospel. 
the denomination identifies six key features of evangelicalism that they want to be shaped by. One, that the Bible's foundational and the ultimate source of authority, the touchstone of truth. I think we can all affirm that. Um, second, that the Trinitarian and Christological creeds of the early church offer the theological grammar for our beliefs about the divinity of Christ and the Trinity. Um, these are things that the church has historically held to, and this should be part of our um, evangelical identity. Third, um, as an evangelical denomination, the EFCA is a product of the Reformation of the 16th century. So the Reformers, the Protestants, these were the first people who were identified as evangelicals because they were trying to recover the gospel. That's the kind of evangelical that we want to be. Um, they were then labeled Protestants as well, but they essentially emphasized the Bible as the supreme witness to the gospel, and they gave a renewed attention to the all-sufficiency of Christ's atoning death for our salvation. That's a stream that our church is part of. The EFCA has also been shaped by the evangelical revivals of the 18th and 19th centuries that brought an emphasis on the new birth and stressed the need for a personal response of faith to the gospel resulting in a changed life. So some of the pietistic movements, especially in America, are part of the history of the evangelical tradition. We are recipients of some of that, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse, because not all of the revivals in America were actually godly or spiritual or even connected to the gospel. So, for example, while the first great awakening arguably was the result of gospel preaching, the second great awakening was not really a great awakening at all. It was just social and moral reform that was more connected to a cultural agenda than it was to the preaching of the gospel. So, our history is messy and complicated, and there are some good things that came out of it that we should hold to, and some negative things that we shouldn't really care about anymore. But then, finally, the EFCA and evangelicalism has been influenced by people like Carl F.H. Henry, who during the 20th century called for fundamentalists to move away from separatism and cultural isolation to become unified in an effort to impact the world with the shape of the gospel. And again, there were some positive things about that and some negative things about that. There was a kind of activism that maybe distracted from the mission of the church along the way. As a brief side note, this guy, Carl Henry, was the pastor of the church that was in the town that I grew up in, in Watertown, Wisconsin. So there's a lot of Carl Henry history there, but uniquely, I grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist church that hated that church because Carl Henry told them to stop being fundamentalists. Uh, so I grew up thinking Carl Henry was a terrible guy, but then I started reading his stuff in seminary, and it was actually pretty good, and I found myself agreeing with it. So for whatever that's worth, if you want to know more about Carl Henry, I can share some. I can share more about people who disliked Carl Henry because I know them a little bit better. Uh, but the statement of faith in the denomination is part of that broader development of evangelicalism that originated in America with roots in Scandinavia as the forebears of the free church broke away from the state church. So like the reformers, who broke away from the state church, saying that church should be comprised of believers, there should be autonomy for churches. The EFCA did the same as different streams of churches broke from their state churches. Along the way, they had a strong commitment to the evangelical unity of the gospel, and for that reason, they didn't want secondary issues of doctrine to divide them. 
So they wanted to say, even as we separate from the state church, and there are good reasons to separate from certain things, we also shouldn't unduly separate over secondary matters that really have no bearing on the gospel. And I think that's an impulse that we need to have at Resurrection Church, to be the kind of church that has strong theological convictions, especially as they pertain to the gospel, but also refuse to divide over things that are not connected to the gospel. Um, we've talked about this a lot, but when you read Paul's letters to like Rome, think of Romans 14 and 15. I think if an American pastor was writing that, he would say, go start your own church plant and have a church plant that observes the Sabbath and a church plant that doesn't. Have a church plant that eats meat and drinks wine and have a church plant that doesn't eat meat and drink wine. That would be our like standard contemporary way of dealing with difference. What was Paul's way of dealing with difference? He called them to welcome one another in the Lord. And I think that's what the statement of faith is trying to do. It's trying to outline where are the boundaries of where you can no longer welcome somebody in the Lord because they're separate from the gospel. And what are those things that are not the gospel but close enough that you really need to be in agreement to be able to be in close fellowship? That's what this statement of faith is doing. It's not trying to outline everything that someone could possibly believe. All right, any questions or comments on, on those things? All right, so statements of faith have to be sufficiently broad to include Christians who affirm the gospel and who are faithful, but it also has to be sufficiently narrow to exclude people who are heretical and who deny the gospel. But for the statement of faith to be evangelical, it can be described as such in two other ways. First, it's evangelical because it's noted earlier, it's shaped by the gospel. That's what's central to it. The Apostle Paul identifies the gospel as being of first importance, and that's what we're trying to do in the statement of faith. And you'll notice as you read through the statement of faith that it basically follows the story of the Bible, beginning with God and coming to a climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus and continuing on to the return of Christ and the establishment of God's kingdom forever. So the statement of faith kind of mirrors the story of redemption. So it's the statement of faith is evangelical in that way, but it's also evangelical because, as I've been saying, it's broad enough to include gospel-affirming people while also being narrow enough to form an identity as a denomination. From the start, this is bottom of page eight, the free church has been committed to being a church for believers only, but for all believers, seeking to major on the majors and minor on the minors. It's attempted to embody that famous statement in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. That's what they're trying to accomplish. It's difficult and it requires careful and prayerful engagement that does include some measure of concessions while also maintaining convictions. And that's every institution and that's every church. And every church member has to navigate that and figure out how can I maintain my convictions while also making concessions so that I can have relationships with other people. There are certain kinds of people who are so narrowly focused that they're un they look at every concession as compromise in a negative sense. I think that's wrong. Um, every Christian has to concede something in order to live in harmony with another Christian. It's called putting other people's interests in front of your own. Um, and that includes some of your theological interests. Um, in a church that's healthy and mature and growing, Christians aren't going to be able to disagree and 
find deep unity in the gospel because the gospel is that powerful. Um, the, this commitment to charity and unity was articulated by an early leader of the EFCA. He wrote, once the early free church leaders began to put in writing what was commonly believed among them, they were silent on those doctrines which through the centuries had divided Christians of equal dedication, biblical knowledge, spiritual maturity, and love for Christ. That inclination toward charity seeks to bring together a diverse spectrum of evangelicals whose backgrounds may be Lutheran, Reformed, Arminian, or Wesleyan, Baptist, and Pado-Baptist, Dispensationalist, and Covenantalists, united in the essentials to engage the world with the gospel. Now, that full spectrum of evangelicalism won't be found in every church in the denomination. There are some churches that will be more Calvinistic in their treatment of the doctrines of grace, and some churches that might be more Arminian, but not like hardcore Arminians where they, you know, if you know what Arminianism is. But, but there's a spectrum there, and some churches will fall on one end of the spectrum and others on the other side of the spectrum. But the point is that the statement of faith is broad enough to say you can be in the same denomination. Now, the reality is that there are some members of some EFCA churches that wouldn't feel comfortable at our church because of the way we would preach or teach the Bible on certain issues. And there are some EFCA churches that I wouldn't join, even though they affirm the EFCA statement of faith, because in the particulars, they're different enough, and there are enough godly preachers in the area that I would just join a different church. And that's okay. But we ought to find a way to, to recognize that we're united by the gospel in a way that transcends some of these specific, more narrow theological convictions. Um, this statement of faith allows a broad array of evangelicals to partner together in mission and fellowship, finding unity in the essential message of the gospel. Now, the challenge, I think, for many of us is to remember that our aim as a church and as Christians is not to reproduce churches and Christians that look exactly like ours or look exactly like us. Looking exactly like us is not the Great Commission. And we have to keep that in mind, even though that's difficult because we think of pouring resources into things and we kind of want them to look just like us. But that's not the Christian way. And if we can't grab onto that, we're going to become embittered as soon as we invest in a ministry that looks different than us. As soon as gospel life on Guam makes a decision to do something different or to maintain a conviction that we don't have, we'll be bitter towards them unless we can commit to the Great Commission over our individual convictions. Does this make sense? Um, this, this is not quite the same, but it, it illustrates it well enough. Tolkien was a Roman Catholic, and, but I think the best of the Roman Catholic. I, th I think he was someone who, in spite of some of the formal teachings of the church, was a genuine believer. And he shared the gospel with C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis came to faith, and Tolkien really wanted Lewis to become a Catholic. And instead, Lewis became an Anglican, and it eventually eroded their friendship because Tolkien was really embittered that Lewis didn't become an Anglican. And I think that that can happen to us sometimes when we share the gospel with someone. If we think our major good is to get someone to look just like us, but then in their reception of the gospel, they become a Lutheran or a, a Baptist of a different variety or an Anglican or something else. If, if we lose sight that our central commitment is the gospel, then we'll lose sight that we have deep unity with these people and that they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we just have to be able to get there while at the same time feeling free to maintain our own convictions. 
you know, I don't feel like I have to apologize for all of the other convictions that I have that are in addition to the gospel, and you shouldn't either. Um, I've discussed this at great length in our class on doctrinal division, so I won't say more. Um, but in this final one minute of our class, I would just point you to the statement of faith. I've copied and pasted it in the rest of this lesson. I'd encourage you this week just to read each article of that. I thought maybe we would, we would have enough time for us to read it and then just to make some initial observations. That didn't happen, but that's okay because for each week, we'll consider a different article in the statement of faith. That way we can work through the whole thing look at the particulars, and then consider any questions or objections or revisions that maybe we would wish were in there, and to see if there's anything in there that maybe would keep us from wanting to affirm it. All right, as we close then, are there any questions about anything I've addressed in this opening look at our statement, well, potential statement of faith? All right, well, um, thanks for your attention, and we'll come back next week and look at the article addressing God. Uh, so pray that God would give us wisdom to know him and love him. All right, thanks.